by and large, the first practice and principle of a circular economy is to design out waste and pollution. Hi, I'm Sebastian Bolney, and this is The Sustainable Fashion Wingman, the podcast exploring the brands, innovations, and careers contributing to a more responsible future of fashion. Hope you're enjoying listening to the podcast and are following along. Uh, Don't forget to invite your friends to listen to, as there are more episodes coming soon. And if you'd like to connect to like-minded professionals in responsible fashion, you can connect with me over on LinkedIn or follow our Instagram page. Now, one of the biggest challenges to sustainability, especially within the fashion industry, is what to do with waste. And this isn't just at the end of a product's life, but a substantial amount of waste is generated before garments are even made. Large quantities of fabric and trims are left unused and discarded by brands on a daily basis. Well, today we're talking to Christina Dean, founder of the circular fashion business, The R Collective to find out how the business is tackling the waste problem in luxury fashion. How does the Art Collective do this? And to what exactly is the extent of material waste from luxury fashion? Well, let's find out. Hi, Christina. Good to catch up with you again. Seb, nice to be able to chat to you today. It's really good for you to come on. I know how you've been really busy lately with the Art Collective, so it's really nice that you've been able to take time out for us today. I'm looking forward to obviously finding out more about the Art Collective, especially for our audience today, and the work that you're doing in tackling waste in the luxury fashion sector. I'd like to just set the scene a little bit, first of all, by getting a bit of a background into the Art Collective. So when did you set up and what was the motivation and the idea behind it? Well, I founded the R Collective, which is a social impact business with a mission to reduce fashion waste in 2017. And I didn't just wake up one day and say, hey, this is the life for me. Um, It actually, there was like a probably a 12 year incubation period by which um, I was working in waste reduction in sort of APAC in the supply chain area in the non-profit world. So to rewind even further into history, in 2007, I first started a non-profit called Redress, which also has a, a mission to reduce waste in the fashion industry. And by hook or by crook, because I was so passionate and so anti-waste, um, I've been working in waste issues for so long and throughout that experience um, on the non-profit side, working in supply chains, we were inundated on by businesses needing to, not necessarily wanting to, get rid of their excess materials. And so as a, um, a non-profit side, we discovered that, you know, a small non-profit cannot deal with the mega, mega industries waste. And so it was in 2017 when I kind of did wake up one day and think, you know what, a non-profit can't solve this problem. A social impact business needs to work to rescue these unwanted waste materials and to put them back into the fashion system and to basically try to make money out of waste and impact most importantly. So I say that the Arclective, the Arclective is a social impact business. It means that we're for profit, but the more profit we make, the more impact that we create. Um, so it's a business much more than just having a purpose. We want to grow because we want to end fashion waste. That's our dream. But we like to dream on because I'm going to be dead before we ever achieve that real mission, I'm afraid to say. A bit, bit depressing, but yes, that's the truth. 
That's often the case with great ideas, though, isn't it? We plant a seed and then and then the tree grows later on to, for everyone else to kind of benefit from. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to share one quick thing because sure. I think it's important. If if I can go back, even I hate to sort of indulge with telling about my story because it's. But you, you did ask it? me. You asked me. I did. <laughs> but um, it's important that I frame this because. My background is not in fashion, really. Ultimately, my actual ultimate background is in dentistry because I'm a qualified dentist. Um, yeah, maybe you didn't know that. I didn't know that. Bit, no, that's, wow. Sounds a bit nuts, but there's a reason to it. Well, I did dentistry and I have a real strong thing for public health. Strong thing meaning I believe in public health. I believe we should protect people's public health. I think it's wrong to have a highly polluted... Um, environment that makes some people sick and some people rich and so I say that because I had that sort of public health love for respect of in my belly and um, I then went on to become a journalist and I wrote a lot about environmental pollution and public health and then when I landed on environmental pollution I kept landing on the textile industry living out in Asia at the time and and that's really how my passion for sustainable fashion and particularly my my sort of loathing of waste came about because if we can reduce waste if we can clean up the planet then ultimately it has a, a benefit on people so I just wanted to share that because um, every day is a is another day for us all and it's extremely hard work all the work that we do but I just wanted to make it very clear that the the mismanagement of materials and the environmental pollution that does arise from the fashion industry has a real true 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 cost it's not us who's paying for it, it's other people and those people who ultimately pay for it are those who are somewhat marginalized really at the fringes of the economy who have very little voice very little political voice um and that's desperate in my view so that's why i care about waste just to say Absolutely. I think it's really important to point that out because it, has, it does have a true cost and it has a huge cost on communities, but we don't see this cost. And this is one of the, the big issues why a lot of kind of the consumers, for example, don't necessarily have an urgency to jump onto these issues because it's just not highlighted enough. So it's really good that someone can come onto the podcast, for example, and make it clear, make it obvious to people. Um, and obviously the R Collective like it sounds like your background is very personal or you've had personal experience with regards to people's health and livelihoods and that's obviously directed you in a in a direction where you've seen the you've seen the issues you've seen the problems and you've come up with these solutions which are the most practical solutions because like you said the issue is huge and a non-profit non-profit organization might not necessarily have the capacity and the resources to tackle something that is so huge and that's where you've obviously come up with the idea of the Art Collective to, to address those issues at such a scale that it is. And I hope that you can grow. And, you know, and that's what you're trying to do so that you can tackle such the, the extent that it is. Mm. And it's a circular approach. So can you tell us what circular means to you and what contribution this has to sustainability within the industry? Yeah, I mean, I want to say, you know, circular. When I think of circular, I think, you know, what goes around comes around, you know, that's a sort of not the answer that, you know, it's not the, the geeky yeah. answer, but it's a philosophical answer. But really what it means in the fashion industry is really to keep materials in use. Um, and within there's many circular sort of philosophies and strategies and practices, etc. But by and large, the first practice and principle of a circular economy is to design out waste and pollution. So, 
that is obviously what we do at the R Collective. It's designing out waste and pollution. Um, and then other principles within the circular economy are really to keep materials in use for as long as possible. And also importantly within the circular economy is really to separate synthetic from natural systems so that we can separate materials. So when I think of the, that's terrible. I mean, I think the way I actually imagine the circular economy is terribly basic. But I truly, sometimes if, if I think about a garment and what needs to be done with it, I imagine a tree. And you think about a tree, when it falls over, after a couple of years, everything's gone. And all the leaves, the bark and everything in between has been um, biodegraded, eaten up by whatever insects and the nutri nutrients have gone back into the soil. Everything's been reused. And if you that concept of what happens to a tree is what we need to think about in relation to a garment that all the materials in the supply chain or in a physical garment need to somehow be absorbed back into new systems, and that is the circular economy. Now, unfortunately, the circular economy is a big buzzword. Everyone thinks it's everywhere, but the reality is it's absolutely nowhere. Globally, of the total global economy, around 9% of all products are circular, meaning they will go back into reuse. And when it comes to fashion, less than 1% of clothing waste post-consumer clothing waste goes back into clothing so I just think it's a bit of a reality check that you know we hear about circular economy all the time and it's it's a bit of a philosophy like that tree that's an imagination but the circular economy is um it's like the holy grail my friend said or it's like a religion but it's going to be a long way until the fashion industry can actually make itself circular because like in a game of chess you've got all the pieces they've all got to be fighting towards the same target which is a circular economy and you need everybody in the chess game to be aligned and ready to to play and that's not happening in the fashion industry whatsoever absolutely of course and it doesn't sound like it's happening at all if there's only one percent uh can be considered and that's probably actually it's probably not point not something percent isn't it that's actually been considered circular why do you think why do you think that is still happening even though we know that it shouldn't be? Well, there's so many reasons for it, but I think the biggest reason in my view um and there's reasons everywhere, but what drives me particularly nuts is the lack of recycling technology to handle the cocktail of materials that basically mm. are within and embedded in all of our clothing. So if you look at post-consumer clothing, so that's obviously clothing, clothing that's unwanted by consumers, you know, that has got everything in it. You name the fibre, it's there. And it, one garment can not only just have multiple fibres, but also trims, plastics, metals. You've definitely got synthetics, probably with some natural fibres thrown in, linings, you know, PU. You can just imagine, just look at yourselves now and you're we're draped in all these very complicated materials. So therefore, recycling those is very, very difficult. So... That's one big challenge, but then the next big challenge is actually um, sorting, collecting, shifting materials from point A to point B. So um, unfortunately, the, the problems are vastly complicated, and there's another mega, mega problem, and that is that the amount of finance that's going to fund businesses involved in circularity is abysmal. Where the money's flowing at the moment in terms of investment is into circular solutions that are tech-driven, meaning resale platforms and sort of rentals or any sort of 
end of life solution or rather sharing of clothing. So, I mean, the reason for that is that obviously investors get technology and technology has a quicker uptake in, uptick in terms of return. So that's really great. So we see that those businesses are flying. We've got unicorns popping up in the resale sector, which is fantastic. But the really big but is that the money is not coming to where the greatest environmental impact is, which is at the fiber level, at the dirty, dirty fiber recycling area within circularity. And the money isn't coming there because it's so complicated. And like you know, that chessboard, all the players need to be you know, lined up, ready to, to go at the same time. So, and also investors generally just don't really understand the sector, which is really understandable because even though I've been doing this for 15 years, I'm still confused. <laughs> um, so, you know, I can't expect any investor really to get it and to be willing to cough up significant amounts of cash, wanting a return, but not knowing how long it's going to take. And R&D and fabric development takes years and years and years if you want to start looking at recycled fibers and then trying to spin them into new yarns and testing that across different fabrications. It takes a long time. So for investors, they need a lot of patience and a lot of guts and a lot of money. And right now, I don't think there's that many people around who have all those components. They'd rather put it into quicker, quick returns in easier businesses. Like resale and, yeah. Yeah, yeah where it's, yeah. Yeah, and as, as like you said, as fantastic as those platform platforms are, they are kind of short term because ultimately the goal would be to actually not have product that needs to be resold because it can just, like you said, biodegrade, for example, if it is going to go to waste. Well, not entirely because the biggest sustainability drive really ought to be to decrease production, decrease consumption, and for all of us to wear our clothes for as long as humanly possible. And as this cheesy, cheesy quote that Mm -hmm. goes around on Instagram says, and it's quite true, the most sustainable pair of sneakers, jumper, ties, you name it, knickers, are the ones that you've already got in your wardrobe. So yeah, so keep prolonging the lifespan in through use and having a much more durable product is the answer to fashion's woes. However, as we all know, I think we know this, most people love buying clothes. So you can tell people, don't buy so many spanners, don't buy so many door stoppers, don't buy so many really boring products I'm trying to think of. (laughs) But when you tell people to stop buying clothes, they just, it goes in one ear and out the other because it's tied into our identity and our sense of self. So I just, you know, durability and longevity and wearing your clothes for 30 years until they're threadbare is the goal, but it's an unrealistic goal because that's not what consumers really, really want and that's not what they're willing to do. And also, very crucially, it's not really what designers, you know, there's designers are creative beasts. They want to create and businesses need to run and make money and they only do that by selling stuff, generally new stuff. So therefore, um, the answer to sustainability woes is not a realistic one. It's a complicated one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So waste, you're very much about waste, as Mm. as we can hear, and the Art Collective itself is all about waste as well. And you rescue a lot of waste materials Mm. from fashion brands, especially the luxury sector. What kind of waste is it that you get and where is it coming from? Where do you get it from? Hmm. 
Broadly speaking, we rescue two types of materials, which would be non-IP waste materials. So they're very generic fabrics, which you can't tell who they come from, which brands they come from, um, or IP sensitive waste, which is obviously stuff that's very distinctive. So the way that we handle both of those two waste streams is very, very different. Um, and we always work very closely with those brands um, on their excess materials. I hate the word waste. We often call it waste because people like it, but you know, it makes people resonate, but really these are obviously not really waste, it's resources really. And where mostly, certainly in APAC, but really between Thailand and China and Hong Kong, that's like our three little pronged supply chain of where most of our waste materials come in. And also in Italy, but only only for leather in Italy. Um, And so the types within the non-IP and IP categories, mainly fabrics. Um, But we also take trims, buttons, interlining, cords, um, and then fabrics of every color and every fiber composition that you could possibly ever shake a stick at. Leathers, I think I said that. And also, although very, very tricky to handle, but we do do it, but it's very, I'm not going to say contentious, I hate to say it out loud, but in some cases we support exotic skins and my goodness my colleagues will shoot me for saying that but I'm telling you the truth because we hate waste and we love to to value materials so where there are things going and where we know that there could be a usage of them then we will facilitate that but we certainly never ever design into or even touch those more contentious materials Fair enough. So you're just handling the, the the waste, and isn't and it's not necessarily coming from the brands, is it? It's coming from the mills that brands would use, for example. Well, it's both actually. Right. Um, it really depends. I mean, some brands own their own waste and their own excess. I'm going to call it excess. Yeah. So brands who own their own excess have got to deal with it themselves, and that is a problem because it's very difficult to to deal with. But on top of that, there are, will be mills and manufacturers that are sitting on their own excess and the excess that the brand owns. So therefore, we t- we work with both, with all of those stakeholders. Yeah. Wow, gosh. And so you've got first-hand experience of all this waste in the industry. Uh, what normally happens with all this, let's say, excess materials then? Yeah. I mean, we love to say to think that we're literally rescuing these materials from the clutches of, you know, the claws of a landfill you know, um, sometimes we are, sometimes we're not. Certainly when it comes to IP materials, we are rescuing it from incineration for sure. I mean, I need to explain why and how, because essentially many brands continue to incinerate their IP sensitive materials, particularly garment, which obviously has a very, very high IP risk um, in terms of like brand protection, brand value. But um so we know for sure that incineration is definitely everywhere. And we know, of course, some businesses have claimed and do not incinerate anymore. Um, so with those types of materials, we recycle those IP sensitive materials instead of incinerating it. So we, dis- we, we remove all of the brand's IP sensitive nature because we break it down to fiber. 
So all fiber looks the same. It's just a different color. You can't tell whose it is. So therefore, that's how we would deal with that. Um, so with the IP stuff, we know that we're providing a trustworthy, verifiable, audited route for materials that would otherwise be incinerated. So we're very confident on that as a, as a sustainability outcome. In terms of the other excess materials that we rescue, we're very, very sure that we're rescuing it for upcycling and not downcycling into rags. So that I can say hand on my heart. I cannot say that every single material that we've rescued would have landed in landfill. Okay. I just don't know because we often ask that and then the brand, no, no one really wants to admit that they're landfilling their, their materials. No, gosh. But to give you an indication, we refuse to buy any materials. So we only work with brands and our definition of waste is a material that's lost its commercial value in its current shape or form from its current owner. So we we will work with a brand when they try to commercialize it, they've tried to design into it, they've tried to maybe even shift it to another production base, they've really tried to deal with it themselves because no brands really want to get rid of their materials. And then we are literally the end of the line when said materials have no commercial value. So they're basically a pain in the backside. And that's when we step in. That's when we say, okay, we believe this is waste. They haven't commercialized it in any other way. And therefore, it's a true, true problem. And that's when we get excited. We never buy. We don't, we don't buy materials. If they can sell it elsewhere, we say, go ahead, sell it, do it. We don't want to buy it. Because there's a market out there for buying um, excess materials, which we wholeheartedly think is great. So we capture the stuff that doesn't go into that market. So it's just when they can no longer no longer keep it in the system and then you step in. Yeah, and what would happen, I mean, they would, a lot of the time, yeah, we, 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 I've answered the question. We don't, we can't prove that it would have gone to landfill, but we do know that it would probably go down a slippery slope and end up in some dirty rag to be used once by a car cleaner and chucked in the bin. So that's, we know that we're protecting these materials by valuing the fibers and keeping them elevated in the supply chain and in use rather than just becoming like as I said a single use rag and that definitely happens I mean we you know we know that the most glorious of materials end up as dust rags and in carpets you know you might be walking on the most finest beat 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 brands luxury fabrics that are in carpets now that's not what we ought to be doing from them but it happens but at least it's not being incinerated and there are I mean I'm going to say and some, I, I know I'm right, but I haven't read every single report in the whole wide world, but I'm very confident to say that environmentally, the, it's far better to reuse, recycle materials than to incinerate it. Now, a lot of brands will say, oh, but when we incinerate it, there's waste to energy capture. And therefore, with these very efficient incinerators, you know, we obviously capture the heat and that is translated into energy, which is all true. So that's great. We say good to that that's efficient. But by and large, the consensus is that even though incineration can be efficient, it doesn't make it really acceptable. And it's better to recycle it into new fabrics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, completely. So can you give us an indication of just how big this issue is of fabric, fabric excess fabric from the luxury sector? Mm. I can't tell you exactly for luxury per se, because Waste is secret. No one talks about it. And therefore, you're never going to get a number on it. I mean, the big reports, the big headline 
reports are that, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, that the equivalent of one dumper truck of textiles is either landfilled or incinerated every second globally. But that one dumper truck includes all types of textiles and consumer. So it's not just coming from industry and it's certainly not just coming from luxury. Um, then there's another stat that every year the um, fashion industry generates 92 million tons of textile waste. It's one that we use all the time. It's very old. It's, is it true? No idea. Because no one reports on waste. So I don't know the answer to your question and actually no one undoes. Interestingly though, in terms of um, a current hot topic, um, and again, the current hot topic that I'm talking about is unsold excess inventory. Yeah. You know, generally, and again, this is not documented, but generally people think that around 20% of garments produced are not sold. 25%, 20-25, some people say 30%. Yeah. And when you consider that supposedly, like we're up to about 100 billion new garments a year and 25% of those are not sold, the excess inventory ch inventory challenge is very, very big. So you can get a, num a proposed number on that. Um, and in terms of luxury, um, obviously, I don't know how much the total luxury industry has as waste, and nobody knows that. Um, and what I would say, interestingly, because obviously we've been doing this for some time, is you know when COVID came, I was thinking, my goodness, you know, there's going to be so much waste of all these either, you know, these, um, um, you know, orders, failed orders, let's just mm -hmm. call them. But what happened after COVID was, I think, two things, top line for me at least, was that we got more inquiries from brands to deal with the waste, but the waste that they were dealing with was not the COVID-impacted waste. So it wasn't recent orders or recent fabric purchases. It was stuck stuff that had been in warehousing for like two years prior to that. So basically, there was a bit of a backlog, like a bit you know, suddenly there are more waste materials out there for sure right now that are stuck in warehouses all over the place. But there was a push to offload pre-COVID waste, knowing that there's another wall of waste coming because of COVID. So there's been an increase in that. And the second thing I noticed because of COVID, just in terms of brands and businesses kind of ideas about waste was actually a much more wholehearted genuine resolve to deal with waste i think covid changed us all on such a human level and the exciting thing is that relates to fashion leaders is that there's more there is and i've experienced i think more purpose and determination in doing the right thing by excess materials from a genuine planetary perspective and that's been really exciting and i've definitely seen that across some businesses and the other thing just about waste is just that no i said this once already i think no one wants to produce it no one particularly designers and creators, when they see their most beautiful prints and de delightful, you know, cherished materials being unwanted, it's it's really horrible for all all parts. Not just like the, the, the accountants, because it's the CFOs who actually are the ones who write this stuff off and who are the greatest push within the businesses to say, we're writing these materials off. But it's really the heart of the creative team that I think is kind of mainly hurt by the excess materials. And one final thing is another thing I've noticed is that 15 years ago, only a few people in any business really had any clue about waste within their own business. And now I notice across multiple departments, there's much more awareness of, of waste and it's much better communicated um, excess materials and that's primarily driven by 
those who manage the waste materials now will go back to their designers and say, hey, we've got this, please design into it, please, please, please. So that's a really encouraging shift I've seen. Uh -huh. yeah. so, so it's still happening and you know, companies are still burning or discarding it in some way. But it must also be financially, you know, we're talking about the CFOs and, and, and things within the business, so signing it off and writing it off, but it must have a huge impact financially to the businesses too. So why doesn't that kind of, you know, stop them doing it? Yeah, it does, because of these fabrics obviously are very expensive, particularly in the luxury sector. Um, I think they get written off, written off as a, a stock until their value is quite low. Um, and then the problem is that ultimately it becomes a creative design issue and an inventory issue. So even though for us 5,000 yards on a roll might be quite a lot, for that said business it's not enough and it's the wrong colour, it's two years out of date now, people have seen it or the creative director doesn't like it or the assortment is changing. So although it's got a dollar sign to it, often it's not a strong enough dollar sign to make the designers accept it. Right. And it actually becomes cheaper just to just to take it off the, not just cheaper, uh, more acceptable to the business just to take it off the books. Right, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Interestingly, though, that also, as I said, we don't buy materials and um, we support the job and market. But we also find that some brands will go to the jobber market and the prices that the jobbers buy at is honestly as cheap as chips. It's absolutely nothing. So, and sometimes some of the brands just can't honestly be bothered to deal with the jobbers because the price is so low and the negotiation or the, the, the um, process is quite laborious. I think it's more laborious working with us, but, um, <laughs> you know, because... Logistics are always very complicated. So I just wanted to share that the financial value of the resale market of these fabrics is actually pretty bad. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you've rescued so much, uh, like you were saying, it would either have been burnt or thrown away or discarded in some way or other. Um, but it's just one step in the art process. Uh, mm -hmm. What happens when you've taken this material? What, what are you doing with it? Yeah, so V1 of our business when we first founded it was really to make a women's wear brand. And we thought, oh, fabulous, you know, we're going to solve this waste price crisis by, you know, making rescued apparel for women who want to shop and want to shop more sustainably. The issue that we've had is that the brand is so slow growing that really the total number of units that we sell is so small compared with the amount of fabrics that we receive. So to answer your question... We have a fashion brand, and which we, we launched, and we've been on Net to Porter. We were on uh, Barney's back in the day and Lane Crawford. So we've, we've had some really nice wholesale accounts, but it's mainly directed at being a D2C brand. But the problem, as I said, is that we're not big enough to deal with the monster, which is that we have too many waste materials. So we've developed a B2B part of our business, which is basically corporate gifts, which is um, what I'd call... It's a little bit of our cash cow. We're a tiny business. We're not even profitable. It's rather depressing, but um, hard work, elbow grease every day. But the, the beauty of our B2B business is that we can shift a lot of material wholesale um, without having to do the marketing. So that basically means that we're making branded corporate gifts for banks, you know, property, retail, 
corporate gifts, you name it. And that's a wonderful thing because these products are going to be made anyway. We hate to make product that's not going to be needed and wanted. So with corporate gifts, we think ethically it's fine to make them because said bank, said property is going to gift on said event or there's a gift with purchase from a marketing perspective. So we do supplement and make those materials for, for other businesses. And then the third part of our business is that we actually sell excess waste materials to support other businesses in becoming more circular by them accessing our excess. Okay. So you, yeah. you have a brand and it's still available to buy garments yeah. directly to customer um, yeah. from the website, I assume. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. And it's not just fabric and trims that you're getting though, is it from, oh, it is just fabric and trims, but do you ever get complete garments from brands? Yeah, we're, we have handled garments, um, ridiculously tricky. Um, we see a greater demand for it, but it's all, all taught no action at the moment, meaning there's no money for it because um, there's basically a manual labor charge that we work with our suppliers to de-label, de-button, de-everything to rip off the components so that the fabric only can be recycled. Um, we did do... So, the, so, so yes, we can do it, but per unit, there's a charge and no, no businesses want to pay for that. So incineration is definitely cheaper than, than manual deconstruction and recycling. We did do a very cool project with one major business, which is we, deconst we shredded their aged inventory and we turned them into hangers, which coat hangers, which is very cool. Very beautiful. They look really great because they're basically shredded textile in with thermoplastic. So they're strong, rigid, they do the job and they look damn good. That's so that great. was quite cool. And they yeah. probably last longer as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we know there's an issue with hangers as well, because obviously plastic hangers are is, is a large issue yeah. with those not being recycled. Yeah, I remember in the yeah. industry myself, there was a huge issue with that. Um, yes. So you're getting brands actually coming to you and saying, can you take garments? But obviously it's it's a lot more tricky because what you were saying previously was that if it's not designed in at the beginning, you just can't it's harder to recycle them because you've got to obviously deconstruct the entire garment, take everything off it, the labels, the buttons. Well, the issue is money. That's yeah, the it. the cost of doing that. Yeah, per unit, because we have to charge that brand X per, it depends on what it is. If it's got leather trim, it goes up. You know, it's it's literally cut, zip, zip, zip. And then we it's priced per garment, as I said. But from there on in, it can be recycled, recycled, but basically it'd be more likely downcycled. So it's going to turn into a carpet or a right. sink or a sock or a rag because the, the, it's just too mixed up with all these fabrics all too mixed up. So what would you think would be, this is a bit of a, a bonus kind of question here, but what would you think would be better? A more facilities that design um, products that are recyclable or facilities at the end of life that can deconstruct garments better? Well, that's like the chess game. Everything's got right. it. It's everything. Yeah. But I would say if we had to pick one, I'd like to see more end of life recycling solutions. But what I'd like to see is brands having and businesses having the budget for end of life management. Right. Because at the moment, it's just really not there. I've never really seen a brand with a lot of cash <laughs> to deal with their aged infantry. They just don't have it. And we understand why. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about this extended producer responsibility, EPR. The EU commission just about a month ago came out with this responsible, um, sorry, sustainable textiles and circular textiles um, strategy. 
and not just them, but many, like this Fixing Fashion report from a couple of years ago in the UK, there's a lot of calling for EPR, Extended Producer Responsibility, which means basically a levy on every product, which means that it's, a, it's generating income to deal with end of life. So I think if that were put into place, there'd be more of a driver to deal with end of life. Right. Yeah, it sounds like that would make a difference. Would you say, though, for businesses now, it's obviously, or correct me if I'm wrong, actually, I'm not sure, but would it be, it's more cost effective to actually design recyclability and circularity into the gum in the first place, rather than having to try and change a business model, raise funds to actually implement more end of life kind of functions? Yeah, I mean, all circularity starts at the design board. So if we want a circular fashion industry, we have to design it, knowing that it's going to take many, 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 many years until actually everything could become circular. Meaning, let's just say brand X, they create a really circular product and they sell it in five markets. But the issue is that all of those five markets need to be able to collect them and send them back to somewhere. So the problem becomes the kind of, the, the post-purchase logistics of getting that product back. If you just design, produce, and sell in one country, you could do it. Right. Theoretically, wow. yeah. Gosh. But to answer your question, it does all start at the design board. And um, that um, recent commission that I'm talking about, I'm going to read it out. I've got it in front of me, actually, but I, I didn't name it properly. It's the EU strategy for sustainable and circular textiles. One of the, the big mandates of it is to create a green design guide. Um, so everything starts at the design board. And actually, supposedly, 80% of an environmental, 80% of the environmental impact of a product is laid down at the design stage. So therefore, yes, it, your idea is correct. You should go and make it happen. Make it happen in the first place. Yes. <laughs> Come on, Seb, Everyone listening. Everyone listening, you need to go and start at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of companies out there who's, as well that, um, I mean, I know quite a few who've actually been on the podcast as well, who, who, are, who are training companies into design and circular from the beginning as well. So it's not like the resources aren't there. So when you're saying that there's not enough resources for end of life, there's a lot there for actually beginning of life design, um, whether it's training or actual designers who even know how to do it from the beginning anyway. Yeah, but I think that also talks to the consumer awareness at the moment. You know, why, why business is putting more into circular design, training, capacity building, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's because it's the right thing to do, number one. So, yes, yep. correct. I love it. But also because what are consumers saying that they want? They want more sustainable products. So obviously businesses were going to put their cash up front where where it's going to have a bigger return on brand value and brand perception, reputation and product integrity. So I think that that's, that's understandable. The slippery slope is at the end of the supply chain when it's kind of like just shove it under the carpet because it's horrible. No one wants to have to deal with it. It's unsexy and it's just, you know. <laughs> so just to say that, yeah, I can understand that. And also... Fashion businesses are product driven, so that's where the easiest money to unlock would be is on the product development as opposed to the the nasty underbelly of end of life. Yeah, um, and also we're talking about as well. Uh, not all not all material that you get is is usable to turn into garments, and I know that feeds into part of the business called the R circular textiles. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, what tell us a bit about what that does. 
So our circular textiles is primarily with our IP sensitive partners, so the materials that are branded. So we will work with them to recycle, depending on the fibre type, into um, new fabrics. And we either do it circular back to them, so i.e. we take their waste and we do all the grunt work with the right suppliers and the right markets and the right kind of R&D on the fibre and then fabric and then it goes back into the same business that it came from. So we're doing that, and it, it's obviously confidential at this point of time, but that we love because we're solving their waste problem and their sourcing and their circularity. So that's what our circular textiles really is. That's really interesting. So that's that's tackling circularity on a different level as well, which is fantastic. Um, now, obviously, you've told us quite a lot about what our collective does, and I think it's given a really good insight onto not just the issue in the industry of, of waste, but also how you're actually tackling it, tackling it as well. But I know you mentioned earlier on about redress, so I don't want to end the conversation without touching upon that a little bit and learning a bit more about that, because I know our collective helps to contribute the funding to redress, which is an NGO uh, that was founded to tackle industry waste as well but through a variety of programs so can you tell us a bit about redress what they do and especially how people can get involved yeah so i founded redress as well in 2007 and its mission is to reduce waste in the fashion industry it's got a formal mission but we're just changing it in fact today but it hasn't come public yet um and it works to educate and raise awareness amongst consumers and fashion industry professionals including fashion designers as a major stakeholder group in terms of how to design and create a more circular fashion industry it's based in hong kong and it's kind of it's geographic and its beneficiary footprint is much more in the apac area um and we redress is you know a team of um, I'm going to say fashion activists who also hate waste but love the opportunity that the fashion industry presents to be a force for good. So it's, I mean, the, the cheesy tagline of Redress, which is, I mean, I wrote it so I can say it's cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the positive power of fashion, which I think every day we must hold on to with all of our might that the fashion industry is beautiful and it's very, very positive and never must we allow its negative impact to, to, to make us give up on the hope that is fashion and the beauty that is fashion. So Redress believes in the positive power of fashion for transformational change, and that's what Redress does. So yeah. it's a bit of an educational platform. How can people yes. get involved with it if they wanted to learn more about circular design? Well, go to Redress, um, and there's lots of educational materials there, and also the Redress Design Award, which is a competition, an educational competition that Redress organises, the largest sustainable fashion design competition in the world. If you go to the RedressDesignAward.com, there are brilliant resources there on design for circularity at every step of the supply chain and, and process. So if you've got people in the industry, there are... You know, you can click at whichever phase of the supply chain you are and there are either videos, design guides or other resources that will involve you and educate you and start the process of understanding. Um, Redress also does um, train the trainers. So we have educational materials for academia as well. So we work with a lot of universities to implement educational materials at the university level and tertiary educational level. 
Oh, that's really that's really yeah. fantastic, and it's it's inspiring because a lot of the educational systems within, well, especially within the UK, as as far as I know, anyway, uh, are very much leaning towards instilling that kind of information into education uh, mm. because of the well, because of the obvious importance of sustainability within the industry. Yeah. So Absolutely. it's good that there's actually more kind of available materials out there through platforms like Regents. Yes, yeah. and it's all open source as well. Oh. So we don't charge for any of our courses or any of our materials, etc. So it's it's wide open and there's a lot there both on redress.com.hk and redressdesignaward.com. Wow, okay. No excuses yeah. for people not to go and check it out, that's for sure. Well, Christina, it's actually been fantastic taking the time out that you have today because um, I know you've obviously been very busy recently and, and you're running two fantastic companies there. Uh, but it's been great to hear about the amazing work you're doing at both Art Collective and Read Your Ass. It's, uh, it's always inspiring to hear of the variety of ways that businesses do contribute towards sustainability within the industry and have a positive impact while, like you say, keeping fashion alive. For the listeners, of course, you can find out more about the Art Collective or redress, uh, or even get involved and check out some of the links on their sites and educational resources by following the links in the episode description of this podcast episode. Thank you, Christina. Such a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it also. And thank you for the listeners. This has been the Sustainable Fashion Wingman. As always, I'm Sebastian, helping you dress, live and work more sustainably. Mm-hmm.